this morning in Matthew's gospel again, Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, and we actually begin in verse one and we're going to go through verse 12. So if you will follow along as I read Matthew 19, beginning in verse one. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. My friends, next to terminal illness and the death of a loved one, I know of no greater tragedy in the human condition than that of divorce. Over the years, I've spent thousands of hours counseling problem marriages, seeking to define the problems biblically so that we can discover the obvious biblical solution and get people to decisively commit to a biblical course of action. And it's a heart-wrenching ordeal. It's a heart-wrenching thing to testify, as I have on numerous occasions, as an expert witness in court proceedings when a divorce is in full swing. It's a heart-wrenching thing to pray with and for deeply wounded spouses that are crying out to God for reconciliation. I know all too well what it is to fear for my own life because of the threats of violent husbands whom I have had to confront And I also know the sound of the vicious tirade of a self-righteous wife cursing me at the top of her lungs. I know, as well as many other pastors, what it is to wake up in the middle of the night and see the faces of wives and husbands grimacing in a pain that they cannot describe. I know what it's like to try to explain to terrified children that your mommy doesn't love your daddy anymore. Or your daddy doesn't love your mommy anymore and loves someone else. In fact, as I think about it, 
There's really not been one month of my life in the last 20 plus years that I haven't been involved in some kind of a marital problem with someone. I've seen it all from abuse to adultery, from homosexuality to murder. I know what it's like, as some of you do, to come before a single mom or a single dad and try to help them as suddenly they find themselves all alone, having to raise children all alone. I know the agony of custody custody disputes. I know, I know the tragedies all too well of a feminized judicial system that penalizes innocent men with financial burdens beyond their ability to bear. And I know the countless phone calls of moms and dads begging me to somehow help them as they are forced to give up their children for visitation to a wicked spouse bent on vengeance knowing that their children are going to be exposed to all manner of evil. Beloved, it's little wonder that God would say in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. Says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The National Center for Health Statistics recently released a report which found that 43% of first marriages end in separation or divorce within 15 years. The Census Bureau reports that first marriages that end in divorce last about eight years on average. Quoting them, they say marriages are most susceptible to divorce in the early stages in the early years of marriage, after five years, approximately 10 percent of marriages are expected to end in divorce. Another 10 percent or 20 percent cumulatively are divorced by about the 10th year after marriage. However, the 30 percent level is not reached, according to them, until about the 18th year after marriage, while the 40 percent level is only approached by the 50th year after marriage. Now, sadly, there are many young people these days, and this is a growing trend, that believe that the answer to all of this is to live together and to have a trial marriage, so to speak. Again, the National Center for Health Statistics reports on the cohabitation and um, divorce and marriage and divorce and remarriage uh, statistics, and they say that among Uh, Their findings, they see that unmarried cohabitations overall are less stable than marriages. They say that the probability of a first marriage ending in separation or divorce within five years is 20 percent. But the probability of a premarital cohabitation breaking up within five years is 49 percent. They go on to say that after 10 years, the probability of a first marriage ending is 33% compared with 62% for those who have lived together before getting married. Well, you ask, what about divorce rates among Christians? Is the slogan really true? The family that prays together stays together. Well, according to a Dr. Tom Ellis, the chairman of the Southern Baptist Convention's Council on the Family, 
He says that, quote, for the born again Christian couples who marry in the church after having received premarital counseling and attend church regularly and pray daily together, that these people only experience one divorce out of nearly 39,000 marriages, which is a 0.00256%. So it's virtually non-existent. But a recent study by the Barna Research Group throws extreme doubt on those estimates. Barna released the results of, of his poll about divorce in 1999. That's the most recent that I could find. And there they had interviewed 3,854 adults from the 48 contiguous states. And the sampling error in this particular report was about two percentage points. And in that survey, they found that the divorce rates among conservative Christians were much higher than any other faith group. George Barna said something that I thought was very, very revealing. He said, and I quote, we rarely find substantial differences between the moral behavior of Christians and non-Christians. Now, friends, frankly, that doesn't surprise me, that statement, because most professing Christians are not truly born again. The Lord has made that very clear in Matthew 7, and we've studied this. He tells us that there's two groups that say they worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the few and the many. There are two groups that would claim they're on their way to heaven and that somehow they've been born again. Those that have entered through the narrow gate, that's the few, and the many who have entered through the broad gate. And the Lord says the only way you're going to know them apart is you will know them by their fruits. Certainly the few will do the will of the Father and the many will not. Donald Hughes, author of The Divorce Reality, said, and I quote, in the churches, people have a superstitious view that Christianity will keep them from divorce. But they are subject to the same problems as everybody else. And they include a lack of relationship skills. And he goes on to say, just being born again is not a rabbit's foot. And then he goes on to claim that 90% of divorces among born again couples occur after they have been saved. Well, my response to that is, you know, I would agree with that if your definition of born again is the superficial definition that is typically indicative of those that profess Christ, but in fact don't really know him. Those who have accepted Jesus into their heart or those who have said, well, you know, I believe that Jesus is Lord and that he has a wonderful plan for my life and I'm here to sign up for that plan. And they've never had any recognition of their sin and the holiness of God. If that's what he means and others mean by born again, then I can understand the tragedy of these statistics. I can understand for those people that claim they're a Christian when in fact they've just wandered through the wide gate gospel of which Jesus warns, that gospel that trivializes the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and offers instead a superficial, simplistic 
gospel invitation that guarantees happiness in life, that you're going to have all of this purpose in life. God even wants you to be healthy, wealthy and wise. Oh, and by the way, you're also going to have a blissful afterlife. And all you have to do, according to one leading church growth guru, is, quote, quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. Well, folks, if that's what you mean by born again, I can understand why there is no difference between, so to speak, Christians and non-Christians. But friends, if being born again is what it truly means in the scripture, where one has seen the depths of their sin and the holiness of God and cried out for mercy, and there's been a supernatural transformation where suddenly that person becomes a new creation in Christ and the old things have passed away and the new things have come and they're given a new heart and a new mind and a new song and everything about them has changed. And now they begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. For those people, Christianity is far more than a superstition. Going to church is far more than a rabbit's foot. Indeed, for them, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation because it is a work of grace that has been wrought within the soul by the spirit of God himself that has produced a a godly sorrow that has led to repentance. And because of that, because of their repentance, they have chosen by a conscious act of their will to turn from sin and to turn unto God, not begrudgingly. Not out of duty, but out of desire. They're no longer a slave to sin. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And now by the power of the indwelling spirit of God, they walk in the newness of life. Again, friends, please remember this. Genuine salvation is radical transformation. And for people who have been radically transformed by the power of the living God, and those people have come together in the union of matrimony, in the oneness that is empowered by the living God, for those people, divorce will be extremely rare and only the result of sin because the indwelling Spirit of God has empowered them to have victory over sin. Now, of course, for people that don't really have that type of a transformation but yet call themselves Christians, Frankly, Christianity is going to be boring to them. It's going to be very difficult because life is really all about me. It's not about God and his glory. And for those people, there's really nothing to restrain the flesh. And so they're constantly pursuing various lusts and they don't really even like coming to church or being involved with other Christians or reading the word because it is so convicting. And it's like, oh, I, 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 this is frustrating to me. So those people do one of two things. They either become a rigid conformist and just kind of suck it up and obey God out of duty, not out of desire. And you know how long that's going to last. Or they become a total rebel. And they walk away from their presumed faith in the Lord Jesus, which really reveals that they never had a genuine saving faith to begin with. It's interesting, the Associated Press computed divorced Statistics from data supplied by the U.S. Census Bureau and the National Center for Health. 
I found it interesting as I was doing some research on this. They found that Nevada had the highest divorce rate. The data showed that the highest divorce rates apart from Nevada were found in the Bible Belt. Tennessee coming in next, along with Arkansas, Alabama and Oklahoma, which would round out the top five for the frequency of divorce. And they also made the interesting claim that the divorce rates in these conservative states are roughly 50 percent above the national average. And again, it really doesn't surprise me. I know all too well the superficiality of the Christian culture in the South, being from the South, living in the South, ministering in the South. Many wonderful and godly people, but for the most part, Christianity is as shallow as water on a plate. There's no real secret devotion to God. It's just a cultural churchianity. Well, today Jesus addresses the issues of marriage and divorce in a very fascinating encounter that he has with the Pharisees. And I've divided this particular text into three categories, trying to do something that will help you have certain categories on which to hang things and to understand the text. First of all, we will see a diabolical trap. And then we will see a derisive rebuttal. And then thirdly, the divine invitation. First of all, the diabolical trap, which is indicative of the liberal mindset of non-Christians pertaining to marriage and divorce. Let me give you the setting here. Jesus, in verses 1 and 2, is leaving Capernaum. That's where we've been in Matthew 18, as he's given the sermon there, and probably in Peter's house, helping them understand many things that we've discussed of late. Now he's heading east from Galilee. He's going into Judea. And eventually he's going to make his way down to Jerusalem to offer himself up as our sacrifice. And the multitudes are following him. And, of course, the Pharisees are dogging his every step, plotting to kill him. But they really needed more public support in order to pull it off because they didn't want to somehow alienate their power base. And so what do they do? Well, they have to come up with a way of trapping Jesus so that they can publicly humiliate him and discredit him. And they have come up with a way. They're going to force him to publicly repeat his very unpopular stand on divorce. You see, we know earlier, Jesus said in Matthew 532, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, when you Jesus was saying that when you just decide for any old reason to leave your wife, And you go and marry somebody else, you're committing adultery because in God's eyes, you're still married to the former person. Well, this was this was absolutely a a terrible indictment to the Jewish people, because you see, they believe that you could divorce for virtually any reason. The Jews believe that they could divorce for any cause at all, the text says, like many folks today. That's what they had been taught. In fact, if you look at the Jewish culture of that day, you'll see that, my, 
People divorced their wives if they burned a meal, if they publicly embarrassed the husband in, in, in public, obviously. And, and if they were even unable to have children, they could divorce them for any reason at all. You could divorce your wife. Women were basically nothing more than personal slaves to satisfy the, the sexual lust of the man to, 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 uh, to have babies and to take care of the house. So, the Pharisees now are going to set the trap for Jesus. By the way, it's also interesting, if you look at the geography here, Jesus is now in, in Perea, which is the land beyond, it means, beyond the Jordan. He's in the area now of Herod Antipas. And you will remember that Herod was the one that had beheaded John the Baptist. So now Jesus is in hostile territory. And I'm sure the Pharisees were rubbing their hands together and licking their chops, thinking, boy, we're going to get him this time. Because you will remember that John the Baptist confronted Herod because of his unlawful marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias, and it cost him his head. So with all of this in mind, they say to him in verse three, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And Jesus stuns them with his unanticipated and sarcastic response out of Genesis. And here we see it in his derisive rebuttal or his sarcastic rebuttal as Jesus rebukes and exposes the Pharisees. Verses four through six, he says, have you not read? And now he's going to go back to Genesis one. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? By the way, in in the Hebrew grammar. This is in what we would call the emphatic position, which is basically saying that the emphasis here is on the one male and one female, as opposed to a collection of males and a collection of females from which to choose if you didn't like the one that you picked the first time. So Jesus is saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he goes on, and he says, and and. And haven't you heard that God said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave. Which literally is the idea this leaving and cleaving is the idea of becoming glued or bonded to his wife. Haven't you heard this? And the two are going to become one flesh. As if to say to them, could any rational person possibly believe that it is somehow lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all in light of God's design for marriage that was clearly demonstrated in the first man and the first woman. It's ridiculous to think that. When the two would become one flesh. When two people form an indivisible, indissoluble oneness joined together in a permanent union by God himself, a union whereby children will eventually come being the perfect expression of their supernatural, supernatural symbiosis. Could anybody possibly believe that you could just divorce for any reason at all? That's what he's saying to them. What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. Now, of course, Jesus reasoning here from the Pentateuch was hard to swallow. 
His position was not rooted in rabbinical teachings, nor in tradition. It wasn't even rooted in the Mosaic law. Jesus goes back to the very beginning to the creative order ordained by God himself. And this, I'm sure, stunned the Pharisees because you know how people are. They set the trap and they hope that you're going to bite on it. And then their very next stage, their very the very next thing they're going to do has already been planned out. But guess what? Jesus didn't cooperate. As we will see, so the trap was set and now it was sprung, but Jesus wasn't in it. The Pharisees were. Now, I need to digress for a few minutes here. It's important to understand the catastrophic implications of sin in the garden so that you begin to understand more of what happens here when marriages fall apart and divorce many times is the tragic result. If we go to Romans 5, and we're not going to have time to do this, I'm going to go very quickly here, but if you go to Romans 5, verses 12 through 19, we learn that in Adam all die. Because of his sin. And the principle of sin, therefore, becomes operative in all creation. And in fact, if you go to Romans eight, you will quickly discover that the whole universe is is decaying and disintegrating. There, the, the text says that all of creation is anxiously longing for the second coming. It even says that even we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, we groan within ourselves Because we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're waiting for the second coming of Christ when this world and this creative order will be renovated. And at the fall, what we see is that there was a huge, frankly, an infinite chasm that was formed where man was separated from God. And likewise, every relationship between man and his fellow man will now be in varying stages of conflict. And practically speaking, with respect to marriage, as we look at the fall, we see that rich and rewarding relationships between men and women, especially in marriage, will inevitably deteriorate into confusion and into conflict unless we understand The unique effect of the curse that God placed upon women and men, their maleness and their femaleness. And unless we understand the divine remedy that would mitigate its effect. God's curse on men and women strikes primarily at the most fundamental essence of maleness and femaleness. And if I can give you something very, very simplistic that would require much more discussion, which we can do at another time. But at its very essence, if we look at the scriptures, we see that maleness is basically initiation. We have been designed to be initiators and females to be responders. And biblically, we discover that our rebellion will now violate the divine order of headship and submission. The roles of both men and women in their relationship as as husband and wife are now going to experience a devastating reversal because of sin, because of the unique effect of God's curse upon men and women. God said to Eve in Genesis three sixteen, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Desire in the Hebrew literally means to control, to dominate. So no longer will a woman naturally 
submit to the leadership of her husband. She is now going to have a proclivity to somehow control him or to dominate him. By the way, we saw this evidenced even in the fall when Eve failed to consult with Adam when tempted by the serpent and she acted independently of her husband. And now she's going to seek to dominate him. Also, Adam mindlessly followed his wife into sin, abandoning, abandoning his role as a leader. And so now God tells Eve and he's going to rule over you. He's not going to rule over you with a tender rule. He's not going to be selfless naturally as he considers your well-being, both spiritually and physically. But now he's going to be harsh. He's going to be overbearing. He's going to be selfish. In fact, as we look at it, the curse on women impacts her domain of influence and fulfillment, primarily her role as her, her relationship with her husband and her children. Now, because of sin, there's going to be constant frustration dealing with her husband. She's going to tend to rebel against him, and yet he's going to try to rule over her. There will be multiplied sorrows, the Bible teaches us, in her life. Multiplied tragedies as she faces death, even at childbirth. The text even tells us that there's going to be multiplied conceptions. Eve's fertility was increased as part of the curse, causing greater opportunity for more sorrow and tragedy. To see more hunger and disease and injury and disappointment in raising children. The curse on men impacts his domain of influence as well as well as his realm of fulfillment, primarily found in his workplace. Because of sin, men are now destined to extreme adversity as they labor to provide. There's going to be constant frustration dealing with rebellious, unsubmissive wives. They will tend to be overbearing as a leader, and sometimes they'll go to the other extreme and just completely wimp out. Because of the curse, there will be chronic irritations, for the man trying to lead his wife as well as his rebellious children, he's going to face endless obstacles in his workplace. He's going to experience profound inadequacy. Every man that has ever lived understands what I'm saying. And many times men become a fugitive from their entire life. And instead of initiating and moving into the life of their wife, whereby she will automatically respond because that's how God designed her. Instead of that, they feel uncomfortable with that. Because of sin now, they would rather move somewhere else and initiate, and they begin to pursue all kinds of things that not only destroys their marriage, but destroys their lives. And beloved, we see that the wellspring of marriage has been divinely poisoned in the curse. And a result of this, we see the rise of feminism and chauvinism. All of that would now become the natural response of a fallen heart. In fact, it was in the garden that the battle of the sexes began. And typically, because of the male's superior strength, chauvinism has dominated throughout history. And now, for many reasons, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction and the opposite extreme as the equally perverted feminism seeks to suppress men. And again, we see this on a continuum. While men were made to be godly initiators with Christ as the example, instead of that, they become either on one end of the continuum a tyrant or on the other end uh, just a wimp 
that doesn't lead at all. And likewise with females, while God designed them to lovingly respond to the godly initiation of their husband. Rather than that, there is a continuum. Some will be on the side of an emasculating shrew that will do anything to suppress a man. While others will go to the opposite extreme and become basically a helpless airhead that just uses her sexuality to somehow manipulate her husband. Well, sadly, my friends, the bitter waters of divorce are drawn from this well. So Jesus responds to the chauvinistic, self-serving position of the Pharisees, their position on divorce for any cause. And he does so by refuting them on the basis of God's original design. Now, again, it's funny to me. They, they, they didn't know how to respond to this unanticipated rebuttal by the Lord Jesus. They were dumbfounded. They're embarrassed. But, boy, they're determined to justify their wickedness. And so they're going to counterattack by arguing on the basis of the Mosaic law where they erroneously thought Jesus would have gone but didn't. So they say in verse 7, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? Which, by the way, is a reference to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And again, we don't have time to go there. But here's the mindset. Here's what's going on. They're thinking to themselves, aha, let's see him weasel out of this one. Is he going to be above the Mosaic law where Moses commanded a person to give another a certificate of divorce? Now, folks, let's stop for a second. This is a great example of how heretics often intimidate people because they know error better than we know truth. And this is a great case of that very thing. They're thinking, aha, touche, I gotcha. But folks, if you closely examine Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, you'll soon discover that it is a passage emphasizing how an illegitimate divorce where a husband puts his wife out for no biblical reason and then remarries somebody else, how that that particular divorce breeds adultery. That's what that text is about. There is no command that he should divorce her. There, it, it doesn't even condone divorce. As in all Old Testament passages, there is no specific permission for divorce given. The only, quote, command in the passage was not to give her a certificate of divorce, but rather that the wife who had been divorced by her husband on insufficient grounds, who had become now an adulteress in her second marriage, could not be taken back by her first husband. That was the command. But isn't it clever how you twist things around to get it to say what you want it to say? So Jesus said to them in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. The point is simply this. While, while there was no specific permission for divorce in the Mosaic law, because of his grace, now catch this, God permitted that which he hates. By the way, we also see his forbearance with, for example, the sin of adultery. The penalty for that should be death, according to the law. But because of grace, we see Israel's history is filled with examples of people who were spared and forgiven. David and Bathsheba, great example of that. Hosea and his adulterous wife, Gomer. 
In fact, in Ezra 10, we see that God even permitted, though he never specifically approved, but he permitted the Jewish exiles returning back into the land under Ezra's leadership. He permitted them to divorce their pagan wives on the grounds of spiritual adultery. By the way, there was probably also physical adultery with them because those pagan practices typically involved gross immorality. But friends, make no mistake about it. God hates divorce, but he graciously permits it under certain circumstances, as we will see. So Jesus says in verse eight, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And then Jesus goes on to suggest a condition where divorce would be permitted. Verse nine. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Again, folks, this is a scathing indictment to the Pharisees who were used to divorcing their wives for any reason and marrying another. So, in other words, what he's saying is an illegitimate divorce followed by remarriage constitutes adultery because God doesn't see that the first marriage should in any way have been separated, should have been rescinded. So this is not a not so subtle indictment against the Pharisees. By the way, the word adultery here, porneia, we get our word pornography from that word. And here it's translated adultery. It's really a very broad term that encompasses every form of illicit sexual activity of which adultery is but one. Practically speaking, if a person is living in persistent, unrepentant adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, transvestism, voyeurism, which is which would also include Uh, the habitual obsession with pornography or any other form of immorality that would become biblical grounds for divorce. By the way, it's interesting. The Holy Spirit has also graciously granted another concession and provision that releases a believing spouse from the prison, not a marriage, but a, a prison where you have an unbelieving spouse that is in the process of breaking the marriage contract that are, that's persistently violating the covenant. That's found in 1 Corinthians 7.15. There we read, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. In other words, if the unbelieving one leaves, and by the way, there the grammar indicates that these people, uh, this particular person is in the process of separating or dissolving the marriage, which, by the way, includes more than just going out and and filing divorce papers. But for this person, this is one who who doesn't want a covenant of marriage. The vows mean nothing to them. There's no love. There's no oneness. There's no covenant. Typically, there's abuse. There's persistent and obvious wickedness. There's nothing but war and conflict. And there we read in that situation, if that unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. It's literally a command. It's not even a suggestion. You're not under bondage there. You're not required to stay bound in that ungodly, wicked union. God wants his children to live in peace. So he grants this loving concession. And by the way, whenever a biblical or in other words, a legitimate divorce is permitted, then the union therefore has been dissolved in God's eyes. 
remarriage is always assumed. Now, some will say, well, you should never divorce ever for any reason. And others would say, well, you can divorce for practically any reason. And folks, we've got to be very careful that we don't exceed God's standards, nor should we lower it to somehow justify our own positions. By the way, it's fascinating when you look at it. You can go back into the Old Testament and you will see that God gave Israel a writ of divorcement. Literally divorced Israel, metaphorically speaking, because of her persistent spiritual adultery. He watches her play the harlot for 700 years. And finally, he's got enough of it and he gives her a writ of divorcement. Now, I would submit to you that if divorce is never an option, then are we going to say that God has somehow sinned by using an example of himself that would somehow taint his character? I don't believe so. By the way, it's interesting in Jeremiah 31, we see that God promises to one day take Israel back unto himself when he puts his law in her heart. So by graciously permitting divorce under these scenarios, the Lord shows mercy to the innocent spouse by not forcing them to remain in some prison of wickedness. And also by allowing them to remarry, he shows mercy by not abandoning them to a life of loneliness. So Jesus, once again, publicly humiliates the Pharisees, exposing their hypocrisy, exposing their chauvinism and catching them in their own trap. Now, having seen the diabolical trap and the derisive rebuttal of Jesus against the Pharisees, we want to focus for the last few minutes here this morning on the divine invitation. Here's where Jesus seeks our joyful acceptance of what he has been teaching. Now, what happens here is the Pharisees now are long gone. (laughs) I'm sure they're off somewhere licking their wounds, plotting their next attack. And according to Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is now alone once again with his disciples. But the disciples now are bewildered. They they, they have heard some things that are foreign to them, that, that are radical to their way of thinking. They contradicted all of the teachings that they had heard that basically says, listen, you know, if you don't like the woman, divorce her. You know, it's no big deal. In fact, that was basically a virtue in their culture. Boy, this isn't what Jesus has said. So, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. I have to laugh. You know what they were thinking. It's like, my goodness, if if you marry a woman and you end up not liking her and the only justification for divorce is some form of sexual sin. And then you end up getting stuck with her because she's not involved in that. My goodness, what am I going to do? Can't can't divorce her. It's it's just better to not even get married. That's the thinking. You see, the idea of marriage for life was hard to swallow for these people. You know what? The same today. Most people go into marriage thinking that, well, you know what? If it doesn't work out, we'll just get a divorce. No big deal. Everybody does that. And sadly, the disciples were unwittingly sharing this mindset, the mindset of the male culture. Again, part of the curse. Where they see women as a possession, something that you just use for yourself. You see, there was no thought in their mind of entering into marriage 
and loving a woman as Christ loved the church. That sacrificial, selfish kind of love with no demand that she reciprocate. Sure, you desire that, but you don't demand that. And honey, even if you don't give that to me, I'm going to keep loving you. See, they, they didn't think that way. It's foreign to them. There was no thought of loving their wives for her sake. They didn't understand that love is a choice, not an emotion. If it is merely an emotion, if it's nothing more than the fireworks that go off every now and then when hormones do the things they do, then what are you going to do when that doesn't happen anymore? They didn't understand that. They didn't understand the idea of, shall we say, for better or for worse. It was only for better for them. There was no thought of a lifetime of commitment where we as men now initiate and move into the lives of our wives and help them become more conformed to the image of Christ. And we love them no matter what they do as a living example of how Christ loves his bride, the church. They didn't understand any of that. They didn't understand that somehow they were there to help their wives grow in Christ likeness and become a tangible expression of his love and his mercy and his grace in the life of his wife to be his arms and 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 and, and his hands of protection and comfort. And love and protection, they didn't understand any of that. But Jesus is teaching them as he's teaching us. There's no understanding that a Christ honoring marriage is an inexpressibly wonderful gift and that that kind of marriage will grow deeper every year and that that kind of marriage is capable of fending off any temptation that comes, any assault. They had no conception of this kind of commitment. John MacArthur has an excellent quote I wanted to share with you. Here's what he says, and I quote, The committed marriage is the only happy and enduring marriage. When two Christians love each other for the other's sake rather than their own and live their lives in humble submission to God's word and to each other, a bond is formed that can withstand every temptation, disappointment and failure that Satan and the world can hurl against them. They become lovers and friends in a way that the unbeliever and the disobedient Christian can never know. In sharing everything together, they forge a friendship that knows no limitations, no bounds, no secrets and no conditions. End quote. And beloved, I would add. These people don't get divorced. These people don't get divorced. Beloved, don't be afraid of marriage if you're not married. And if you look at your marriage and you say, boy, it's not what it should be. Please know that by God's grace, it can be what it should be. When you understand your role as a husband and you understand your role as a wife and you understand the unique effect of the curse on both. And you begin by God's grace to immerse yourself in the word of God and conform yourself to it. And by the power of the spirit of God, you become more like Christ and that marriage begins to grow in a glorious and fulfilling harmony. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, you know, as a man now 53 years old, if the Lord were to take me home today, I've lived a full life. I've lived a, a rich and rewarding life. I've been blessed with good health. I've got all that, that I need materially. 
I've had a life of fascinating adventures that for many people is things they only dream about. I have had and continue to have an amazing number of friends, incredible friends, wonderful, godly family. I can wake up every morning like a lot of people can and rejoice not only in my salvation, but in what I do as a pastor. I love what I do. But friends, may I say to you that you can take all of the good things that God has given me in my life. And I say this from the very bottom of my heart. All of that is utterly eclipsed in comparison to the joy that I have in my marriage with my wife, Nancy. And you know what? That's not because I did anything so great. My goodness, just ask her. She'll tell you. And people might say, well, what's going on? What is the secret? Well, the secret is really no secret at all. It's, it's just simply when you love the Lord more than you love yourself, there's a oneness that occurs between you and him and between you and him and her or him. If it's your husband, I can look in my wife's eyes, as I say, and I never see bottom. I don't know where I, I don't know where I end and she begins in my life. That's what oneness is. Indeed, she is the most tangible expression of God's grace and his faithfulness and his love in my life. And, and, and I say that not in any way to exalt our marriage. We, we, we have problems at times, too. She's really hard to live with at times. But you know what? The thought of divorce is as foreign to me or to her as me going out there and taking a chainsaw and cutting off my leg. It's incomprehensible because of the gift of oneness that God gives us in marriage. This is God's design for joy and blessing, not sorrow and conflict. I think of Jacob's love for Rachel in Genesis 29, 20. You remember the text. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Proverbs 18, 22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 14 says, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And then he promises Specifically here, the men that live obedient lives in Proverbs 518, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Well, all of that to say, Jesus responds now to the disciples misguided statement, preferring singleness over marriage due to the very narrow justifications for divorce that Jesus gives them. So here's what Jesus says in verse 11. But he said to them. Not all men can accept, can, can accept, or in other words, embrace the statement. In other words, your, your previous statement that, that, boy, it's just better to stay single here. I mean, you might as well not even get married. That's the way it's going to be. Not all men can accept the statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Given what? What's he referring to? Well, not everyone has been given the gift of celibacy. We read about that. It's a supernatural gift in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. In fact, very few singles are able to live godly lives due to the constant battle they have with sexual temptation. That's why Paul said it is better, better to marry than to what? 
than to burn. And I find this rather humorous in this text. Jesus goes on now and he's going to describe three basic categories of singleness that was well known in that culture. In response to the the, the silly idea that the disciples had and their frustration, worried about getting married because, after all, you can't get rid of her for any reason. He gives three basic categories of singleness. First one we see in, in verse 12. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. This, of course, would refer to those born with a congenital physical deformity that would eliminate natural sexual desire. Well, there's a second category, he says, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. These, of course, would be those in that day. And in some cultures, they still do this. Men that are castrated males. Uh, That was considered uh, a, a noble thing to do in some of their pagan circles, a form of idolatry that pleased their their deity. And by the way, they also did it for men that guarded the harems. So Jesus gives them two options here, and I'm sure the disciples were not excited about these two options, these two remedies for singleness to avoid the potentially sad possibility of a marriage that you can't get out of. But then he gives them the third one and says, and there are also eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And of course, this would be a reference to those who have been supernaturally endowed with the gift of celibacy, causing them to voluntarily live a life of singleness without the difficulties of dealing with 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 the all of the 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 sexual desire problems, freeing them to serve. By the way, the Apostle Paul was such a person. We read about the advantages of this in first Corinthians seven, beginning in first thirty two. Paul says one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife and his interests are divided. And any of us that are married understand that. We have responsibilities. He goes on to say, and the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband and so on. So bottom line. Folks, if you don't have the gift of celibacy, get married. But don't simply get married to satisfy your own desires, but rather to selflessly pour your life into your mate for the glory of God. And watch what God will do to bless you. And Jesus closes this whole section by saying at the end of verse 12, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. By the way, this is not referring just to the gift of celibacy, but it's much broader than this. He's saying, those of you who are able to accept what I'm teaching you about marriage and divorce, I want you to accept that. This is my plan. I want you to jettison any of the the self-serving and unbiblical notions that you have that makes you think that somehow marriage is merely an opportunity for self-indulgence. And if if your wife or your husband... For whatever reason doesn't make you happy, then just get rid of them and get another one. Well, I trust that these truths have been made clear to you. And more importantly, I pray that you will apply them to your life, that you will teach them to your children, that God will be glorified in your life and you will be blessed beyond what you could ever imagine. 
as you live out a life of celibacy, if God's called you to that, or a life of godly marriage where you will experience the blessings that can only come by the infinite grace and mercy of God. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for the clarity of your truth. I pray that you will enlighten us and encourage us and help us to follow your standard and not the standards of the world and the standards of the indulgence of our own flesh. And I pray especially for that person that might be within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of Christ as Savior. How I pray that you will bring conviction to them and that today they will repent of their sins and make you the Lord of their life and experience the miracle of the new birth. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.